open to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. The message this morning will focus on the ninth chapter of John, and after we have read the scripture, please uh, keep the Bible open or keep your finger there for uh, the message. We'll develop the text and will not uh, make a lot of sense to you unless you follow the text as we uh, go through the message this morning. I am reading this morning John 9, verses 24 through 34. If you would uh, follow as I read, and would you please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. So a second time they called him, who, they called the man who had been blind, and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He therefore answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. They said therefore to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples also, do you? And they reviled him and said, You are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if one is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were born entirely in sins and are you teaching us and they put him out may God add his blessing to the reading of his word thank you you may be seated thank you Shelley as we follow Jesus of Nazareth through the gospels the record of that portion of his life which uh, the Lord has seen fit to give us, one thing that is very obvious, though it is not always stated explicitly, is that he never went anywhere by accident. He always knew where he was going. He always had a reason. He was never late on God's timetable, even though often... He was slow on the timetable of his friends. And he always was on time. As he journeyed toward Jerusalem, he was on this road, I believe, among many paths that would lead to his destination because he had an appointment, because there was one man with a need waiting to meet him there. This is the only time 
uh, recorded that the Lord Jesus healed something that was a birth defect, something that was a lifelong congenital problem. And it is indeed a marvelous story. A little bit of background before we get into the text. In the Judea where Jesus lived, there were three points of view about the kind of problem Jesus fixed that day. That is, when a baby was born defective. One of those views was the view of reincarnation. No, Shirley MacLaine did not discover it. It is one of the most ancient of all heresies. And in the day of Jesus, there were mystics in the desert called the Essenes. We have benefited greatly from their uh, reverence for the Scripture, for they are the ones who put in the clay jars and hid in the desert what are now called the Dead Sea Scrolls. But the Essenes and their, uh, their followers who became the Gnostics of the New Testament church, the Essenes believed in reincarnation. And so when a baby was born defective, their point of view would be that in a previous life there was something they did that caused them to be born defective in this life. The second view was that it was heredity, that God punished the parents by making the child defective. The third, the third view is yet more bizarre. It was the view that God punished the child by allowing the child to be born defective because the child had been sinful and rebellious in the womb before birth. And so when Jesus began to deal with that, he was dealing with that understanding or lack of it. It was an interesting world philosophically where he lived. And one of the remarkable things about this passage is the insight demonstrated by the man who is cured. When he was born blind, whatever position of recognition, whatever a leadership role, whatever status his family had was taken away because it was viewed as judgment from God. The rabbis held to that hereditary view and so it was not, they were not fit for leadership because the child was born defective. Now, among other things, that meant that it would be very difficult for this man to receive the kind of training and exposure to their faith and to the scriptures that other children receive. And yet, we see that not only was his sight restored, but with clarity and understanding beyond the learned men all around him, he saw the truth. It is a marvelous example. Jesus was there because he had an appointment with him. Now in John 9, notice if you would, first of all, in verses 1 through 7, here is the cure. The story begins and the background uh, comes after the recitation of the cure. 
It says simply, beginning in verse 1, And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now the rabbis taught that it was because of heredity. Others taught it was because of the child. Therefore the question, Rabbi who sinned, this man that is in the womb, or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus said it was neither this man that this man sinned nor his parents. But it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, for night comes when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. This is reminiscent of creation. It seems that with every passing week, the Lord Jesus, as he journeyed toward the cross, made it more and more plain and obvious that he claimed to be Messiah, that he claimed to be one with the Father. This is reminiscent of creation. It says in Genesis, and Jesus uh, knew it well, that God formed man out of the dust or out of the clay of the earth. And here Jesus makes clay and use it, uses it to reclaim the ability to see that this man did not have. God said in the beginning, let there be light. And Jesus said without so many words the same thing. For whatever reason, the cure was not effected immediately. The Lord Jesus demanded a response. He demanded obedience. But the faith generated by the words of Jesus in the heart of the man led him to obey. You know, the disciples were asking an academic question. Lord, you're aware of this theological controversy. Now, who's right? Those who have told us that it was the baby's fault or those who have told us that it was the parents' fault. But Jesus did not even answer the question. One difference between Jesus and most of us is that periodically I think all of us get so absorbed in trying to decide what we ought to understand and how we ought to believe that we kind of lose sight of the needs and the things that are going on around us. They wanted to talk theology. Jesus didn't think it required discussion. He thought it required action. So rather than debate or discuss the theology of it, he just did something about it. His motive was compassion. And his desire to help was strong enough that even though he knew of the controversy that would result from what he did, he went ahead and did it 
anyway. We will see in these verses that follow that the neighbors simply referred to him as beggar. The beggar could make a living in this society for they were obliged by their understanding of the law of Moses to not pass him by without giving him something. But he was somehow somewhat less than human. He was a nuisance. He was unproductive and they were not unkind to him. They were just indifferent. To him. Someone has said, and I agree, that the greatest insult is not to attack someone, the greatest insult is to ignore them. And that is what they did with this man. The cure, marvelous and clear in its claim to the deity of Christ, to his power. And then notice in verses 8 through 23, here is the case that followed, the legal proceedings that followed the cure. One thing that you need to keep in mind as we uh, look at what this man had to say is that he did not try to capitalize on his fame by making the miracle sound grandiose and sensational. It would have been easy for him to embellish and to manufacture a few details, but he is content simply to tell the simple, factual truth. And someone like that, even though it may not be sensational and exciting, is of far more value as a witness to others than someone who manufactures a sensational testimony when they describe their personal experience with God. You know, I'm afraid that a lot of us sometimes acquire a complex that if we do not have some kind of an amazing and exciting uh, testimony of great deliverance from uh, disaster or, or a miraculous something or other or a, a, a light, a bright and shining light striking us down to our knees and the voice of God speaking, that if we can't talk like that in terms of our relationship with God, that something is wrong. That's not true. The miracle of salvation, which is the gift of God, that miracle is magnificent enough that if you will, with simple clarity and honesty, share what he did, it will be effective and powerful in the lives of others. Through these verses, uh, there are ominous words that they took him to the Pharisees and that it was on a Sabbath day that the cure took place. This meant still more trouble for Jesus. He had broken the Sabbath law at least twice. He had made clay. And by the act of stooping to the ground and spitting in the soil and, and making a, a, a pasty clay in his hands and putting it on the eyes of the man, he had broken the Sabbath by working 
on the Sabbath. Now you've got to understand, or it helps to understand, that this party within Judaism, the Pharisees, had developed 614 laws around the Ten Commandments. They were called commonly the hedge laws. They reasoned that if they built a high enough and thick enough hedge around the Ten Commandments, they would never violate the Ten Commandments. And so the Ten Commandments became the 614 laws. And one of those states that if on a Sabbath day's journey, even if a man were to walk only as far as he were allowed, and he could only walk so far, that was uh, the reason they had uh, so many synagogues, because they had to have one within a Sabbath day's journey of their home. If in walking to or from the synagogue, a twig of a tree caught in the train of the robe and an individual dragged that twig along. When he became aware that he had done that, he had to go to the temple, he had to offer sacrifice for his sin, and he had to repent because he had plowed on the Sabbath. Now that's the kind of mentality that, that Jesus was facing. He was in big trouble. He had worked on the Sabbath, and he had healed on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees reasoned, Everyone knows that the scriptures say God rested on the Sabbath. But Jesus pointed out to them, here and elsewhere, that God never takes a vacation from being gracious and godly and kind and loving to his people. But you know, now they had quite an obstacle because here was a man the cure was undeniable. You go through several levels of testimony about, by the man and by uh, the witnesses and by his parents, and they absolutely cannot deny the cure. They can't deny it. The man was blind. He was born blind. He had sightless eyes. His eyes never functioned. It was obvious. They had no sunglasses. Everybody could see that he was totally blind. And yet here he is, clear-sighted and bold in the joyous witness of what has happened to him. With a progressive uh, discussion, all of their objections are systematically destroyed. Some were saying, is this him? Others were saying, it's him. And someone said, no, it can't be. And he said, I am him. I'm the one. What happened? And he told them the simple facts. The man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. It would be a good thing, I think, if sometimes we were not as smart as we believe ourselves to be. Because our depraved human nature is so absolutely resourceful and creative 
that between the time we know what God wants us to do for the first time when he speaks, when we hear his voice through scripture or worship or prayer or Bible study, between the time we hear and the time we can respond, in that moment the mind goes to work trying to explain why we don't need to do it and suggesting an alternative. It is so significant, and the man was so honest, he put clay on my eyes and he said, go wash, and then the verb, so I went. He obeyed, and as he obeyed, his need was met. And immediately they wanted to find Jesus, and the man said, I don't know where he is. And so they brought him to the rest of the, the Pharisees of the synagogue, and he described it again. And they asked him again, what happened? They didn't believe him. They questioned him yet again, verse 19, and brought his parents and said to him, Is this your son, and was he born blind? Now the parents are really in a quandary because the rulers of the Jews had decreed that if anyone should believe that Jesus was Messiah, they would be excommunicated. They would be, the word here is put out. It is, it is a violent word like to throw away or to throw down so that injury is done. They were to be put out of their relationship to their family of worship, their family of faith. And many seem to find a reason to criticize the parents, but I'm not sure that we can read their motives. They said, he is our son, he was born blind, we don't know what happened, we weren't there, he is of age, ask him. Now, of course they knew because he had told them. They believed, but they stopped short of the stand that he took for fear of the Jews. Truth is always controversial. Always. Joseph Parker said this, and I like it a lot. There is, no, there is so much controversy in theology because there is so much truth in it. There is next to no controversy about a gatepost. The judgments of men are tolerably unanimous upon the subject of gatepost. But give a great truth that is at once a commandment, a revelation, an inspiration, a discipline, a comfort, a promise, a friend, a companion an inspiration, a discipline, and in death a joy eternal, and probably you will find a great deal of controversy about it. We find in the controversies of our faith the grandeur of our faith. There is always controversy 
about truth. First, there was a miracle, undeniable, marvelous, incredible, and then there was criticism and controversy. They could not see even the possibility that God had wrought an incredible healing because all they could see was that Jesus broke the rules. We human beings are very good and very skilled at taking divine truth, which is like a pyramid. It stands on a foundation so broad and so strong that it cannot be upended by logic or reason or any other power. But arbitrarily, we try to take the pyramid and stand it on its point. They were so confident that they understood all truth, they did not allow God the freedom to color outside the lines. The Lord never colors outside of his own lines, but those sketches that we develop that express the way that we understand truth or the way that we plan our lives regularly and constantly and always, he is coloring outside the lines. He is Lord. They couldn't see the miracle. He deviated from their way of understanding, and all they could do was try to eliminate the deviation. And then notice in verses 24 to 34, which we have read, and then the last four verses, verses 38 to 41, here are the consequences of the act. We've read 24 to 34, beginning in verse 38, or verse 39, pardon me. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, so your sin remains. In the verses that we have read previously, the man makes a statement so clear, so precise, so honest, so unaffected, that even though he is a man without learning, Without letters, he would not be able to write because of his defect or to read the scriptures. Yet he confounds them. Everyone knew that he was healed. And all that he knew was that he could now see and to his unsophisticated mind, he could not understand how an evil man could do such a good deed to him. 
when they could no longer reason against him, they resorted to vituperation and violence. They stated their position. They had now absolved his parents, and they said to him, You were born entirely in sin. And they threw him down. They put him out. He would have been without privilege, having been put out of the synagogue until and unless they restored him, he would not be allowed to cross the threshold of the temple. He would not be able to go at the time of the morning or the evening sacrifice or the prayers that they offered kneeling toward the temple three times a day. He would not be able to hear the rabbis teach nor to join with his friends and his family in public worship. They had taken it all away from him. And his crime was he had been blind and now he could see. How sad but how reflective it is of the human condition. Bishop Ryle said that when knowledge only sticks in a man's head and has no influence over his heart and life, it is a most perilous possession. And when, in addition, its possessor is conceited and self-satisfied and believes he knows everything, the result is one of the worst states into which the soul of man can fall. Let us diligently use whatever knowledge we possess and ask continually that God give us more. Let us never forget, says Bishop Ryle, that the devil himself is a creature of vast knowledge and yet none the better for it because he does not rightly use it. See the consequences of their unbelief. The consequences to him were costly, immediate, and enormous. But to them, it demonstrated that they did not even understand the law of God that they had memorized so well. They did not understand what the scriptures taught about the mercy and the, the kindness and the long-suffering patience of God. They had a prejudice against Almighty God so total and complete that when he walked in the room and spoke to them, they did not recognize who he was. Their pride blinded them and their bigotry rejected both the Lord and the one who was cured. Sometimes one will say in, in uh, joking, don't confuse me with the facts, I have my mind made up. And the reason that that is humorous to us is because it is so true. Every one of us and everybody else that you know is totally and completely convinced of any number of things that make absolutely no sense. 
And I don't believe that any one of us even understands all of those things we believe that are not correct. If we did, we might do something about it. We assume, based on limited knowledge and information, that we know, but we don't. They were so sure that every detail of the truth had been entrusted to them that there was no room for a loving, sovereign God to deviate at all. See how far they go. The crime of this man was the truth. And yet they put him out. Jesus said, you are not blind. If you were, you could be made to see. But because you say that you see and you refuse, your sin remains. They were guilty. They were condemned by themselves. It is reminiscent of the words Jesus said about judgment that by our words we shall be justified and by our words we shall be condemned. It is also reminiscent of what Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. The more we know, the more we see, the more God reveals, the more we are accountable to live on the basis of the truth that he shows us. The consequences of refusing to see, refusing to believe, refusing to obey are enormous. But then notice in verses 35 to 38, here is the confession or perhaps the profession of faith, if you prefer. Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, And who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. This man had been cut off. He had been excommunicated. He now had no standing, no status, no privileges. But it was the best thing that could ever have happened to him. Denied the fellowship of his family of faith, denied the full support of his parents, he found in Jesus Christ open arms to welcome him freely. Jesus took him in. One of the things that is very important in this chapter is it is the first time, I believe, in the Gospels that Jesus makes so clear and radical a break with Judaism. It is clearly a foreshadowing of the time when the church, which wanted to bring Christ to all of his people, was forced out of the Jewish family because of unbelief. Jesus says to the man, it doesn't matter. He didn't say to him, submit. He didn't say to the Pharisees, restore him. He rather opened his own arms and took him in. 
He completely overruled what was done. Now in this chapter, we see the growth of this man's understanding. In verse 11, he acknowledges that Jesus is a man, the man called Jesus. In verse 17, when they said, what do you think about him? He said, he is a prophet. And as he confesses him in verse 38, he worships him. And the Jews only worshiped God. The Lord Jesus does not always show us everything he has for us the first time. He does not come to us with a quiz and say, now understand all of these things right now. Rather, in spite of the fact that we are ignorant, in spite of the fact that we are blind, in spite of the fact that every one of us has a rebellious heart, in spite of all of that, he comes to us and first in love and tenderness and mercy, he touches us where we hurt. And through the touch and the help and the healing and the comfort, he opens our hearts and our eyes and we come to him. He was blind, but he was willing to see. The Pharisees were not blind, but they were unwilling to see. This is a fearful word spoken in advance to the Pharisees by the one who will sit on the throne at the last judgment and render the verdict. Yet as he now utters it, it is a penetrating call to repentance. We have seen in the book of Revelation and we, we see in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ that God truly is patient and long-suffering and merciful that as he shows us our sin, as his spirit confronts us with truth, there is always in that a call to repentance. By putting the man out, by decreeing that no one could believe in Christ, they did not put out the light. It continued to shine, and it still does. They could not quench it. And we see in this situation, as many of us could bear witness from our own lives, that no matter what the need, no matter what the problem, no matter where it came from or how long it has been there, Jesus is the master of the situation. And he is able to bring help and to bring healing. I urge you to bring him all of your trials, your sin, your tears, your fear, and your needs because he will take you in also. May we pray. Heavenly Father, every one of us
who know you as Lord and Savior have had the eyes of our hearts illumined by your power so that we might come to you in repentance and receive salvation. Father, give us grace to trust you today for that persistent, nagging, overwhelming thing that floods over us so often. Father, forgive us for not remembering that you are master of every situation. By your power, if you choose to deliver us out of what we face, we will praise you. But if you choose by your presence to sustain us and hold us there, we will praise you. Father, draw from our hearts the kind of commitment, the kind of confession, the level of repentance which will make us more like Christ. I pray in his name. Amen. We will sing as a hymn of commitment and invitation, Just As I Am. It is hymn 187 if you need the hymnal. I would invite you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ to accept him as Savior, as Lord. I would invite you to share publicly with us that you have done that if you've never confessed it before men as the scriptures require us. I would invite you to join the church if this is where you live and if God would have you invest your life in ministry here with us. I would open the front of this room for you simply to kneel and pray. But whether you respond publicly or not, what he would have you do, do it right now. Do it quickly. It will never be any easier than it is today. As we stand and while we sing, you come to him.